So the, we're going to start out thinking back to an event in history. It was, it was February 22nd, 1980. The, uh, the Winter Olympic Games were taking place in Lake Placid, New York. Some of you might remember that event, uh, that, that particular event that took place. And specifically, as far as hockey goes, the United States and Russia were about ready to play in the semifinal round uh, or semifinal game of the medal round. And this was definitely nothing new for the Russian team. They had won the, f the previous four gold medals in, uh, in hockey. Uh, they beat an NHL all-star team not too, uh, not too in the distant past from the 1980 Olympic Winter Games. They were the premier team in the world, if you will. The, some argued that not only was this the best Russian team that had ever been assembled, some people said that this was, up to that point, the best hockey team that had ever been put together in history. The U.S. team, on the other hand, not so much. They, this was a group of amateur hockey players in, in every sense of the word. They were recent college graduates. They had uh, not played the same level of competition that the Russians had played, and they surely weren't playing to the same level that the Russians were, were playing. So to make matters worse, the, the U.S. hockey team and the Russian hockey team played a, an exhibition game just about two weeks prior to this matchup they were about to have. They played in Madison Square Garden, and the Russians crushed the U.S. 10-3. to they had just gotten drubbed by, by the Russians. This was not looking good for, for Team USA. Uh, the, the Russians were more experienced, they were more skilled, they were more mature, and they had one plan, and that was to crush Team USA again, get back to the gold medal match, and to bring home a fifth straight uh, gold medal to the Soviet Union. This wasn't their first rodeo, so... You might think they were a bit overconfident, perhaps even arrogant, as they were approaching this game. Before, before even playing the game, they had planned to win and to move on from this, this small obstacle that was the U.S. hockey team. One thing I realized in, in, in getting ready for, for today is you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to struggle with arrogance. Uh, and we're going to see that as we walk through the passage today. Um, there's a lot of things that we... Uh, can become arrogant about in our lives, and planning is one of those areas that, that it, it, it's evidenced, and you may ask, you know, okay, how or why? And we'll, we'll see where the Bible exposes our hearts when it comes to planning. We plan all kinds of details in our life. We plan our retirement. Uh, you know, we got to make sure that our funds are invested in the right, the right portfolio. We got to make sure we get the right return, and we're we're almost guaranteed to get X amount of dollars at retirement. We're really confident about it. It's going to happen. I'm going to be able to retire with dignity. Uh, we plan weddings, every single detail of those weddings, everything from the colors to uh, what the menu is going to be at the reception, and so on and so forth. We plan vacations. We plan what we're going to wear. We plan where we're going to eat out. Some plan how many kids they're going to have. And perhaps you all walked through a situation similar to my wife and I. We were at a certain point where we had two boys. They were seven and five at the time. I was pretty confident and satisfied with where we were at. wasn't planning on having any more kids, but uh, my wife ended up pregnant in December of 2013. Plans changed. 
Some, sometimes unexpected things happen. Is it, is it okay to plan things in life? What do you all think? Yeah. Is it okay to be specific with our plans? Absolutely. Should we reasonably expect that what we plan to happen will actually happen? Maybe let that sink in. So how, how should we plan in light of that? That's exactly what James is going to address in our passage today. And you've heard a lot on the context uh, over the previous weeks about wh- what's taking place, uh, who James is writing to, what was going on, so I won't spend a lot of time doing that, but just to give you a little bit of background, he's writing to Jewish Christians that are dispersed out from Jerusalem. They're living in different areas of the known world at that time. And when they were living in Jerusalem, they were living a relatively predictable life. Uh, things were mapped out for them. Um, it was very, I don't want to say easy, but it was relatively simple to know what to expect. They weren't in Jerusalem anymore, though, so life wasn't as predictable as it was when they were living in Jerusalem. And he addresses arrogance with regard to planning in this passage, uh, at, just like the Soviet hockey team in 1980 uh, was very arrogant when they were approaching Team USA in that semifinal match. And as we walk through the passage, we're going to basically cover three big ideas uh, that, we, that we can see in this passage. Number one, how we plan, and that comes from verses 13 and 14. How we should plan, and that comes from verse 15 and how sin ultimately wrecks our plans in verses 16 and 17. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll read through the passage, and uh, we'll dig in. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's powerful. Thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it uh, does a work in us that only it can do, despite my shortcomings or any other teacher's shortcomings. God, I pray that that your word would be clear tonight, that you would challenge our hearts, and that you would uh, change our lives as we walk out of here, even if it's um, something seemingly small. Uh, Thank you for each person that's here, and I just pray that uh, they are edified from, from your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's go ahead and read through the passage, and then we'll we'll dive right in. James, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he starts out. He says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's a lot to unpack there, but I'm going to do my best. So first big idea, number one, how we plan. This comes from verse 13. James says, come now. You can picture James in this room full of people, much like an auditorium right here. He's just finished talking about how there's one lawgiver and judge, and who are we to judge our neighbor? And you can almost picture him hone in to one side of the room, and he says, now listen, 
you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is speaking to, most likely speaking to, a group of merchants or, or business owners in the first century church. And uh, these, these merchants and business owners, they made their living by traveling around from marketplace to marketplace and city to city, uh, trading and, and making a profit and acquiring wealth. Um, and travel uh, was quite a bit different than it is now. It was very expensive. Travel still is expensive. Um, it required careful planning and, and a precisely thought-out process in order to make a profit. And travel also indicated a certain level of affluence. And what we, what we can see is that not everyone was traveling the way these merchants were traveling. And uh, what we know from, from Scripture and from human experience, our hearts can very easily be deceived by by wealth, and we have a tendency to trust in the amount of money in our bank account as opposed to God's ability to provide, and that was bubbling up in the hearts of these merchants as he's addressing uh, the issue of arrogance and planning, and there comes a point where the line gets blurred between the amount of money I have and me starting to think, I don't really need God. I've got this. I'm just fine. I'm doing just fine without him. He, he got me to where I'm at, and now I'm good. And we almost get to the point where we start thinking, okay, well, any, any plan I make, anything that I'm going to do, the equation of that is my brain and my smarts plus my work ethic plus my network of contacts equals success, however I define it. So we have uh, all these variables that are in that equation, uh, and God is essentially an afterthought, not even really in the equation. So with our formal theology, what we say we believe, you know, we say, yeah, we trust God, we're dependent upon God, we need God, uh, that's our formal theology, what we believe. And then we have over here our functional theology, how we actually live, and we have this, this mindset and the, the way we actually carry out our lives is, you know, I got this. I've made my own way. I, I, don't, I don't really need God. This is the mindset of James's audience that he's writing to. They were living, much like we do in a lot of ways, as functional atheists. We say we believe, we trust, we depend, but in all actuality, we're more confident, we're more trusting in our own abilities and our own possessions and our own network of people to get things done. And the quotes that you see uh, in verse 13 most likely indicate that James heard this saying from the very lips of these merchants as he interacted with them in the marketplace. So it's almost like he's saying, hey, you know, I heard you say this, now listen. So he, he essentially heard this most likely. A lot of scholars um, believe that to be true, and it, it, makes, it makes sense that that would be the case. Verse 14 uh, says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Notice the, the future tense of the verb will. We will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. When the fact of the matter was, these first century merchants in the church, they didn't have a clue what was going to happen tomorrow. Much like us, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
We don't know if, if we're going to be alive tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to have a, uh, a family emergency tomorrow or the greatest thing in our life happen tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And then he goes on to say, what is your life? Depending on the translation you have, you may see that translation or you may see uh, what your life will be like. So you may see that translation depending on if you have the, the NLT or not. Whether it's what is your life or you don't know what your life will be like, both ideas communicate the same thing. And that is it's absurd for humanity to make assumptions without either knowledge of tomorrow or control over what's going to happen tomorrow. It's almost as, as if James is putting his audience in their place. Does that make sense? There are times when, believe it or not, my sons misbehave, and I uh, have to put them in their place when they misbehave. And I, I have one particular son that he gets really irritated with his punishment. And there's a reason why he gets that particular punishment. It's because I know it irritates him. Um, and he tells me, you know, Dad, I'm not doing this. You're not going to punish me. You're not taking that away from me. You can just imagine all the thoughts that go through my head when I hear that statement. Either you said that when you were a kid or you have a kid that said that to you, you can, you can kind of have an idea what I'm talking about. So all those thoughts of, I brought you into this world and I can, you know, finish the sentence. Um, so in that moment, I have to, not always, but uh, the goal is to lovingly put him in his place and help him realize, hey, you're the child. I'm the parent. I'm responsible for you. You don't punish me when I misbehave. I'm going to discipline you because I love you. And James is, is putting his audience in their place saying, you have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. You're here one second and you're gone the next. And we'll, we'll see that as we talk about the concept of a mist. Um, and he, he drives this home forward by using that word. And the word means puff of smoke or uh, seeing your breath in the air when it's cold. I, and this is more a quantitative statement rather than a qualitative statement. He's not saying, oh, you're just a mist. He's saying you're a mist, meaning you're here one second and gone the next. In the whole scope of eternity, our life is a period on that eternal line. Anybody like fajitas at Mexican restaurants? That's my go-to. Every time they walk out, you know, it's sizzling and going everywhere, and everybody in the restaurant's looking like, oh, who's getting those? And, you know, they set it down on the table, and it seems like it's five seconds, and then the smoke is gone. It seems like it lasts forever, and then it's just, poof, it's gone. That's our life, uh, figuratively speaking, as James is talking here. We make these presumptuous statements that we have control uh, over what's going to happen tomorrow, and we know what's going to happen tomorrow, and it's almost laughable. In, in God's, God's sight, because we are just a mist. Our life is here one day, and it's gone the next. But you may ask, what's the problem with crafting a detailed plan? Isn't it good to be prepared? Well, I would say yes, but I, I don't think that's what James is addressing here. Uh, last summer, I went through a, a pretty big life change. I, had a, a, I was um, transitioning between jobs. It's a situation I had never been in in my uh, adult life. So as I walked into this season, 
I uh, did what I normally do. I created a plan. I had a timeline. Okay, I, I'm gonna have a. I'm gonna have the next job by X date. Uh, I'm gonna reach out to all my network contacts. I'm gonna meet with them and talk to m- with them face to face, and I'm gonna find out what opportunities are out there. Uh, and you know, because it's not it's not what you know, it's who you know. Exactly. I had all these. I had all these preconceived ideas in my head of what this was gonna look like. My trust was ultimately in my own plan, my own experience, my own abilities. It wasn't, it wasn't first and foremost in, in God at that, at that time. And what I found out was this process took way longer than I thought it would, way longer than I wanted it to. Ended up coming back to Salina, Kansas, my, my hometown. Haven't lived here since 2005 and got a uh, position with a company where I didn't know anybody directly. So everything that I had planned didn't happen. It took longer than I thought it would take. It had nothing to do with my uh, network, and it was a company I didn't even know of in Salina, my hometown, where I hadn't lived forever. And another way that the uh, author in Proverbs is essentially communicating the same idea that James is communicating here is in Proverbs 27.1. He says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring. It's good to have plans and goals. We've already established that. That's not, uh, that's not a mystery. It's very wise. Proverbs talks about planning for the future and being prepared. Um, God gives us resources that are at our disposal. But let's be careful to realize that God himself is not at our disposal, if you will. It's very arrogant for us to presume our will upon his will. And that's the issue that James is going after. These, these business owners were presuming what they wanted to happen would happen and taking God out of the equation, let alone his will and what he wanted uh, to happen ultimately. We cross the line when we make plans that are separate from God and that aren't in consideration for his will. All right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to marry this person. I'm going to have this career. I'm going to retire at this age. It, it's not wrong to say those things and to have those plans as long as we have the mindset of, okay, God, this is my plan. There's nothing inherently evil or wrong about what I'm planning, but I understand that you also have a plan. You also have a will. I'm not going to hold on to these things with a closed fist. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold these plans with an open hand. So if you desire to change them, okay. And we'll get into that mindset here in the next uh, part of, of the passage. So then you ask the question, okay, uh, how should we plan then, considering all the, all the uh, information that James is sharing with us? And he answers that very question in the next verse. Instead, you ought to say... If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So he's, he's established the point of, okay, uh, business owners, church, uh, cross point, you have no control over what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're here one minute and you're gone the next. What you should say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and and do this or that. He's backing the truck up all the way, and he's saying, um, if God gives me the ability to breathe tomorrow, I will 
do this or that. The whole statement is predicated on what God's will is for their life, as opposed to their own will for their own life. And it's not as if he's trying to communicate, okay, this is a, this is a legalistic language or a, a magic formula. Uh, just make sure that you say, if the Lord wills, before you say everything, then that's your ticket. That's, that's not a, at all what he's saying. He's saying this is, this is a position of the heart that recognizes and ultimately submits to God's sovereign plan over our plan. And again, another example from uh, the author in Proverbs, chapter 19, verses 21. This, pa- this passage uh, supports James James's letter here in this section. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It's probably a familiar verse with, with a lot of you. Proverbs 19, 21. And this passage is reflecting a key theme in the book of James. And that key theme is a genuine trust in God is going to be evidenced by the way that you live. Faith without works is dead. We see that all throughout the book of James. It's, it's essentially the, the hinge pin of the book. It, it almost appears as if you read through the book of James, it's very similar in, uh, to Old Testament wisdom literature, but there is a connection that links these passages together, and that theme of faith and works is what is holding this together. Genuine faith, we've already seen this, genuine faith uh, in God leads to recognition that we're going to pass away like a flower, chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, genuine faith in God leads us to not merely hear the word, but to do what it says, chapter 1, verse 22, um, genuine faith in God is going to eventually lead to us loving our neighbor as ourself instead of showing favoritism, chapter 2, verses 8. Genuine faith in God is going to lead us ultimately, uh, not perfectly, to controlling our tongue, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Genuine faith in God leads to true wisdom characterized by humility, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And like Pastor Ryan preached last week, genuine faith in God leads to us humbling ourselves before the true lawgiver and judge instead of judging our neighbor. And in today's passage, genuine faith in God uh, should eventually lead to us making careful plans in consideration of God's will and trusting his ultimate plan instead of my own. And so you may say, you know, planning around God's will, that can be really complicated. I'm not sure I'm going to like what I see, and uh, I don't know how you expect me to do that. That's a great question. Who here shopped on Amazon before? Most of the room, everybody in the room maybe? maybe. Maybe one of us hasn't. Amazon has infiltrated the, the world of retail. So what, what we do on Amazon is we, we get online, we're shopping for something. We're looking for something, and we have our electronic cart. We click on this, and we put it in our cart. We click on that, and we put it in our cart. And perhaps we don't make the purchase at that moment. We leave for a while, we come back, and we decide, ah, okay, you know, I want this, and I want this, but I don't want that, so I'm going to remove that from my Amazon cart. And in the same, same way, our attitude can be, okay, God, you know, he, here's my plan, but I want your will. And then let's say God shows you his, his plan. He shows you his will. It's, it's pretty clear to you. Um, 
but you may not like what you see and you think, nah, I don't want that. I'm going to put that back. I'm going to wait for something better. Wait a minute, God, you want me to talk to that person that I have nothing in common with? Or you want me to be quick to listen and slow to speak to that, that person who's just downright rude? Or, God, you want me to sacrifice a second vacation this year so uh, I can give to a family or a cause that has great need? We may not always like what, what God shows us when we ask for his will. We take it out of our cart, our spiritual cart, if you will, and we put it back, and we keep looking for something else. This type of thinking is evidence of the mindset, the heart position of our last big idea. We'll start in verse 16. It's verses 16 and 17, but we're going to break these down one verse at a time. Verse 16, um, as it is, he just told them how they should plan, but this is, he, he's reverting back, but you know, the, the reality is, is this. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Boast simply just means to brag or to rejoice, and the important piece is what is the object of the boasting. And in this passage, the object of the boasting is the arrogance in the planning of these first century merchants in, uh, the, in the church. And he uses that word evil. And again, it's not super complicated. I'm sure we've heard, you've heard this word a million times. You've used this word a million times. It just means wicked uh, from, a, from, a con, from a contextual standpoint. This word means wicked, malicious, or mischievous. And this word evil, it embodies the, the mindset of Satan and what he stands for. Satan is the author of evil. And in this next passage we'll look at, Isaiah is talking about the king of Babylon, but uh, if you read the previous verse, most likely this is referring to Satan as well. And if you go back and read verse 12, um, you'll, you'll see why. But he's, he's essentially quoting the king of Babylon and also Satan in his mindset. He said, "'You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens.'" I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Whew. Thanks an awful lot of himself. When we make plans apart from God, when we presume our will upon his will, essentially what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in his place, much like the king of Babylon, much like the author of sin, Satan himself. I don't know if you came tonight expecting a, a very encouraging message. Hang with me, we'll get there, because there's hope uh, and at the very end of this, this passage. But uh, James, as you've, if you've been here for any number of weeks in this study, if you've read the book of James before, you know he doesn't mince words. Um, he's very clear. He's very intentional about what he's trying to communicate. And um, my heart is to try to communicate it in the same way that, that James communicated it, uh, because I had to preach this to myself before I could even think of being able to bring this before anyone else. So when we have this mindset, we're essentially saying, I am sovereign. What I want to happen will be. 
church, quite frankly, that's, as, as he said, that's sin. That's evil. It's wickedness. And in verse 17, he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When you look at that verse at face value, it seems like it's kind of out of place. Like he's talking about planning. Uh, this is how you plan. This is how you should plan. Uh, but that's not how you're planning. Oh, and by the way, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When you look at it at first, it's like, what? Why? Why is that verse there? It doesn't seem to really make sense. But in reality, there's a connection with the whole, much like the rest of the book of James. When we make sinful plans with, or, excuse me, it's sinful to make plans without considering God and His will. That you've heard the phrase, there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. So we make plans and we do them without considering God and his will. We commit a sin. That's a sin of commission. Likewise, uh, now the audience, the, the uh, us, we know that that's not the way we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. If you know the right thing to do, and you don't do it, that's also sin. We omit that from our conduct. That's a sin of omission. So we have sins of commission that we commit, and we have sins of omission that we omit from our conduct. So he's saying you, uh, it's, it's, it's evident that you're making plans from a prideful state of your heart, and when God shows you something different, you don't submit to it, and I don't want to do it. So you have a sin of commission and a sin of omission. So the two issues are lacking humility when we're planning and ultimately submitting to God's will. And you may say, you know, ignorance is bliss. If I don't know, then I'm not responsible. We all know that, um, as, as Scripture teaches, generally mankind is responsible for our sin, and we're accountable to God because he's revealed himself. And you may have heard the phrase general revelation or nature. God's revealed himself. You know, we, we look at nature. We look at the ocean. We look at mountain peaks. We look at volcanoes. We look at a river, an, um, a lake, the birth of a child, and we realize, okay, there is something beyond me. God has revealed himself in nature, so ultimately we're accountable to him. And as it relates to as we, as we see God's revelation of himself, we have a tendency, because we're warped by sin, to twist the truth that's before our eyes. And the short answer uh, to James's audience uh, as believers is that if we follow Christ— it should be indicated by the way we live and uh, the way we plan, both the, the details of our life and the big picture items, and it should influence the way we speak about our plans. And it ultimately should reveal a desire for his will, um, a, a dependence upon him, and ultimately submission to what he has for us. We know the right thing to do, but we struggle to do that. Uh, it's, it's very similar to situations when I'm at home, and if, if you remember saying this to your parents, or maybe you had uh, a child say, one of your kids say this to you, he, one of my sons comes up to me regularly and is like, Dad, I'm bored. You've heard that before. It would be very easy for me to just say, okay, go watch TV, go play video games, because what that's going to do is it's going to get you out of my hair. 
and I don't have to really try and, and, and do anything uh, to, to help you out with that. I know the better thing to do and also the more challenging thing to do because it usually results in an argument between him and I uh, is I'll, I'll give him a suggestion, a couple suggestions. Hey, you could do this. Hey, you could read a book. Hey, you could go outside. Hey, you could uh, draw or you could write or, or something like that. Uh, I'll give him some, some suggestions and I'll ultimately say, figure it out. And also, the, the other uh, items in that discussion that I'm wanting to help him to understand is being bored is not an emergency, and it's not a sin. It's not wrong to be bored. Uh, they come up to you, Dad, I'm bored. It's like, okay, what do you want me to do? The other thing I want him to understand is my primary role in, in, in your development is not to entertain you or to make sure that you're entertained. And I think sometimes that's what we have a tendency to think with our parents. Or if you have kids, that may be, may be uh, a mindset that creeps in here or there. And being bored isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it leads to creativity, uh, better productivity, and um, problem-solving capabilities. All crucial skills to be a responsible adult. And if I know the better thing to do is to give him those suggestions and to ultimately say, hey, figure it out. Um, but I don't do it, what's the result going to be, you think? Well, I run a higher risk of him not developing those crucial skills, and it's going to be more challenging for him as an adult to do adult things, to, to be responsible, to maintain his own uh, residence, to hold down a job, all of these things. It's going to be a little bit more challenging if that's the decision I choose to make, even though I know the right thing to do. And likewise, um, when we boast and we trust in our plans and our abilities or how much money we have or the network of people in our sphere of influence, James calls this sin. The attitude of our hearts should say, if we profess faith in Christ, if we're a follower of Jesus, what our hearts should say, uh, the attitude of our hearts, if you will, would say, if the Lord wills. We pray and we ask for God's will. He shows it to us and we say, I'm not going to do that. That is sin. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We're here one second and we're gone the next. Only God's plan and will can ultimately be trusted. So as we go back to the beginning in talking about that, that Olympic hockey game in 1980, the, as most of you know, the U.S. hockey team accomplished the impossible on February 22, 1980. Despite the, the success and the dominance of the Russian hockey team, and, and despite their plans of crushing the United States, um, the U.S. team defeated the Russians 4-3 to three in that gold medal round game, which became known as the Miracle on Ice. Some of you may have a memory of that, maybe you've seen highlights of that, but it's debatably the biggest sporting upset in history. And the Russians, there they stood, shocked. Couldn't believe it. The U.S. team wasn't even supposed to be there, but they were. They weren't supposed to be able to compete with the Russians, but they did, and they beat them. This wasn't a part of the Soviets' plan, but it happened. 
They didn't know what would happen. The Russians didn't even know what would happen the night before the game. But in their arrogance, they thought they controlled their own destiny. They thought they were going to just dominate the U.S. hockey team. They were going to move on to that gold medal game. They were going to bring home a fifth straight gold medal to their nation. But that's not what happened. They found out that the belief and the determination and the teamwork of what was seemingly a weaker opponent was enough to end their Olympic run. They were put into their place, if you will. The Russian team got put in their place. And also the example um, that we talked about at the beginning, my wife and I, uh, this was December of 2013. We had had, we had two boys at the time, like I mentioned. Um, Carson was seven. Eli, our middle son, was, was five. I was feeling really confident about where we were as a family. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about having more kids. Um, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't something that was on my heart, on my mind. Um, you know, if you ask my wife, it may have been a different story. Um, but God had different plans. He gave us a third son, um, and his name is Noah, and he's about to turn five. And God gave us Noah at a time that I I couldn't have planned, couldn't have planned it better. You see, my mom passed away from cancer in early December uh, 2013. Uh, We found out about three weeks later that my wife was pregnant with our third, third son. And as I reflect back on that time, it was, a, it was a, an amazing picture, a beautiful picture of God's grace and his ability to bring joy in the midst of a really sorrowful, sorrowful time. So, so what does this mean? What does this sermon mean? What does this passage mean to you and I as we move, move on? Um, I have two primary applications from, this four, from these four verses in the book of James. The first one would be, uh, maybe you say, Jake, uh, I, after hearing this, after, after thinking about it, you know, maybe I am arrogant in either the way I plan or maybe in another area of life. Uh, the first step, the first application point um, that I have to even consider myself is we've got to confess our arrogance. First off to God. Um, very familiar verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A second step may be to confess it to a, a, a trusted brother or a trusted sister in Christ. We'll see. I don't want to steal the thunder of, of the last passage uh, in the book of James, but James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's that middle section of chapter 5, verse 16. So, for the majority of this sermon, it's probably felt like, ugh, okay, yes, I'm a sinner. I sin. I do sinful things. I have a sinful mindset. But there's hope. There's, there's more hope than we may even realize. That second application point, boast in Jesus. Boasting isn't of a, in and of itself a sin, Galatians 6.14, the the passage or the book that we're walking through on Sundays, Galatians 6.14 says, uh, Paul says to his his audience, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And what I thought 
would be a very appropriate Old Testament example. We have uh, the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. Uh, He's communicating his message through Jeremiah. In chapter 9, verse 23, he says, This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. You see, the hope that we have in boasting in Jesus is that Jesus knows what tomorrow holds. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to mishear me. The, the, the message of this sermon is not, okay, try harder, pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps, work on your being more humble, uh, and then eventually you'll be more humble. Uh, the, the hope, the object, the hero of this, this passage of this sermon is Jesus Christ. Uh, he knows tomorrow, unlike us. He's, he sees the end from the beginning. He's not a mist, He's, he's not here one second and gone the next. He's always been here. Jesus is eternal. And he perfectly obeyed the Father's will in his earthly life and death. Uh, the Bible says that he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. You know, I, we don't really have a good contemporary example of that, but if you can just imagine... You know, he, he obeyed even to the point of the electric chair or hanging. Um, crucifixion was still worse than both of those, in my opinion, but he was obedient even to the point of death. He lived the life we could never live. He died the death that we should have died. And for what? To say, yeah, to save people that he loves and to bring glory to himself. And as, as Tim Keller, uh, a theologian, has said, the gospel is not a how-to manual uh, to a better you or, or ten steps to a better you. It's not a manual to help you find God. The gospel is news. God found you, and he found me. And as he's found you, he's changing you. He's changing the way you and I live. He's changing the way you and I talk. He's changing the way that you and I think, and he's changing the way that we plan. And in that, we plan with humility. We, we have a detailed plan. We, we know what we're going to try to do, but we hold it with open hands, knowing and submitting to the fact that God may change our plans. And we obediently... Walk in, that, walk in that step. And ultimately, God willing, bring more people to himself.